Uh, this is Dave Broadbeck sitting here in my, what I euphemistically call a podcasting studio, but it's actually the uh, room I do podcasts in. It's not really a studio. It's my daughter's old bedroom. That is neither here nor there. Uh, the following lecture is from psychology 3926 slash 4926. Special topics in cognitive psychology, animal cognition. Hope you enjoy it. out of B.S. Skinner. And that is not a, a, a learning-based, hmm, I'm sorry, a cognitive-based thing. Oh, Jesus, it gets hot here. Does this thing control anything? No. No, no I so. The HVAC systems are internal and they're just... No, no, the ones here, actually, I can control the thing in my own office. I know that. They've changed all that. The point is, I wonder if, it does anything, if this one does anything for this room. Yeah, they changed all that. It was like that, but they over the the renovations over the summer. We all had a separate set thermostats, and it was great. I just think the ones in the rooms are probably the classrooms are probably just a scam. <laughs> um, well, it used to be that Paul, if he wanted the heat turned up in his office, I'd go to ask Cheryl. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we have a cognitive. We're talking about animal cognition, of course. Yet this grows out of a idea of a Skinnerian idea of we don't talk about behavior, uh, sorry, cognition because it's an epiphenomenon. Which means it's just an uninteresting thing. Or it doesn't exist. At best, it's, a, it's an emergent property. The important thing is behavior, what we can describe. It got to the point, in fact, at Harvard, which is where it was, is that you never said in the psychology department what's on your mind. People you say what's on your behavior because they were a bunch of pedantic dicks in the sand. Um, apparently, B.S. Skinner, by the way, very nice man. I've heard nothing but very nice things about Except for when he traumatized a kid. Except for which? For when he traumatized a kid. That was John Watson. It's not B.F. Skinner. John yes. Watson was an asshole. <laughs> no, he was a bad man. Yeah. No, B.F. Skinner was apparently a super nice, gentle person. Um, and he let his graduates do the study whatever the hell they wanted to, even if it wasn't behaviorism. He didn't care what you were studying, as long as it was you were doing well and trying hard and following good rigorous methods. So he's apparently a very nice man. Yeah, John Watson was a jerk. Cognition probably won out because it explains more data. I mean, that's how science is supposed to work. So it's more complicated to talk about representation than it is to talk about stimulus and response, but it explains more data. So that's the way science is supposed to work, so good yay science. So we still use Skinner's methods, though. We still talk about fixed ratios, variable ratios, fixed variables, variable intervals, all that stuff. Skinner boxes. So it's not like. What? So it's not like. Uh, I gotta go. Yes, money. It's like. And then I have to do this, which means I break various fire codes or something. I don't give a shit. <laughs> So we still use the methods, even though we have rejected Skinner pretty much. So animal cognition memory, so talking about memory, starts in the mid-70s. Uh, early to mid-70s, there were conferences at places 
like uh, Dalhousie University. This Canada has a huge role in animal memory studies. Okay. Uh, there were conferences in '74, '80, '84, '88. It was like an Olympic thing. <laughs> Actually, it's strange, but really, what or '89 and was was, and I went to the '89 one, which was pretty cool. That was neat. Oh, I just said that. Uh, as I just mentioned, <laughs> yeah, conferences on in the '70s. Now, it wasn't just in Canada, but Canada played a big role. There's a big Canadian component, and I, I, I just give you these are just names off the top of my head. Ken Chang, um, who is from Toronto, I think originally Hong Kong, now lives in Australia. Because Ruth T didn't keep him, I still smartest guy over me. Dave Sherry at Western, studies food story birds. Sam Ravuski was at Munn. Um, Cheryl Winelder is a really good impression. John Stadden uh, was at U of T, eventually at Duke, retired now. Marcy Stetch, uh, years in Alberta. So, sure, the aforementioned Sarah Shuttleworth. Vern Honig, uh, who was at Housing would organize those conferences. Andy Baker over at McGill, Doug Grant at Alberta, Don Wilkie at UBC, Jerry Hogan at Toronto, that's the Dust Breathing and Jungle Fellow guy for those of you guys scoring at home. Ben Lolordo, that's Sarah's, or sorry, that's Cheryl's PhD advisor at Dow. That's a nice That's Lori's uh, master's advisor. Just died. Sucks. And Bill Roberts, so I did my post that for last year. That's just off the top of my head. Okay? For some reason, we're very good at this. I don't know why Canada's good at this. We're just strong at it. But I think what happens is, as long as you have one generation of people who are strong at it, they're going to breed more of them. <laughs> so when it starts out, and it really starts uh, with her and him more than anything, with, with Sarah and with Bill Roberts, which I got lucky with both these people, they're pretty much two of the more founding people. Bill Roberts was a postdoc, sorry, was a, was a professor, had a job, quit to become a postdoc, which, see, back then, there were jobs everywhere. And because he, he wanted to study animal cognition, which wasn't a thing yet. So he went and did a postdoc with Edmund Talton at U of T. Uh, Sarah, in graduate school, just wrote a paper called uh, Constraints on Learning that was like mind blowing. She was like 26, just to make you all feel like complete losers. Just like, I'm 53, twice that age. So that makes me feel even worse. I always said to her, you know, you did this, you were like a kid. And she always said, I was in the right place at the right time. And I used to always say, you're too humble. And he, when he retired, did I tell you guys this? When he retired, he said to me at a conference, you know, it's so bad that I have to retire because I'm finally doing good work. Like he helped him get the field and actually grabbed him by the shoulders. And I said, Do you know who you are? Which he didn't expect. Um, because, like, he's in his 80s. Uh, all right. So, if we're to talk about memory in animals, we're talking about, you know how in humans you talk about short term, long term memory? By talking about episodic and semantic memory? Here we're going to talk about working and reference memory. Working memory is what you need to complete a single trial of some task. And reference memory is the rules of the game, the, the requirements for any trial of that same task. And I'll go through an example in a sec. But keep this in mind. This is what you need to complete a single trial. This tends to be, by the way, hippocampally mediated. 
reference memory is the rules of the game. The requirements, this, you could think it's kind of short-term and long-term, but not really necessarily. Okay? The idea of working memory as a, an animal memory concept, Vern Honig came up with that from Taz. And this is a very, I think, a simple enough example. The task is called matching the sample. If you were a pigeon and this were a key light, this is you'd see a red light come onto your Skinner box. Today it wouldn't be a light. The Skinner box would probably be a, a touchscreen. It, it, it works easily, and you can change the, the stimuli. It's a lot easier to change stimuli rather than just a, a single light. But you would probably still do if you were matching the sample. You'd still use a background and a red circle, probably instead of traditional. So then the red light goes out, which I don't have happening here, should I? And then you, the pigeon gets a choice between red and green. If you choose red, you get food. If you choose green, you get no food. And this would be like seven seconds of access to the grain hopper, a little grain hopper in the, in the cage being opened. And this is done in the dark, so the pigeon's paying attention to the stimuli. And also, when the stimuli go out, the food hopper opens, gets lit up so that you can actually see very little food. You're not going to miss it. So that's five or seven seconds of access to the grain. That's pigeons love that. That's what they live on. And of course, they go in hungry. You keep them at eighty-five percent of their free feeding weight, and you um, you let them eat for about a week or two. You weigh them; they eventually stable off, and then you put them on a diet. And you say, "I'm going to keep you at eighty-five percent of that, and you don't get any of your food until you're done this each day." So they motivated. These snakes work faster. They will work for food at about 95%. They just work faster at 85. It's probably more healthy for them, too. So, they, the idea here is that they have to match the sample. They get good at this pretty quickly. Say 15 <coughs> sessions of 40 trials each, they'll be about 80%. They will make mistakes. They'll be a we, we could do just matching the sample, or we could do delayed matching the sample, which is more common, where the red light disappears, and then the choice between the two lights comes on. And of course, half the time the sample's red, half the time the sample's green. Half the time the right answer's on the left, half the time the answer's on the right. We aren't stupid. We all took, like, you know, 2127, or some version thereof. So, matching the sample then, you mean matching the sample or delayed, matching the sample delayed is more interesting. That's where you start to think about memory. You can also do late non-matching the sample if red pet green, if green pet red. You can do symbolic matching the sample if green pet triangle, if red pet square. And the stimuli could be colors, or shapes, or spatial locations. You could do if it was over here, pet over here again. There's all kinds of ways you can go about it. Okay. Delayed matching two samples. So delayed matching the sample. So what's the working memory part? Sorry, let's start with the reference memory. What's the reference memory? What are the rules of the game? Pack get food. Mm. Yeah, that's probably there. What else? Wait, I have to remember the specific stimulus that you have to, 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, but that would be then saying you have to remember a specific stimulus. That might be a reference memory rule. But one that works for every single trial. There's two ways to solve this task. There's one way, which is to say match the sample. But the animal just learns that it has to match the sample. Or the animal can learn if red, peck, red, if green, peck, green. Okay? So there's two ways. We, and you, I'll ask in a second how we can figure out what the difference is. But there's two possible ways to get to that. The, the working memory part is what Keegan was saying. That's the idea of was it green or was it red? The other thing if the animal could do is this. Think about this for, refer, for working memory. It was green, it was green, it was green, it was green, or peck green, peck green. How are you going to get between is the animal encoding retrospectively or prospectively? Right? That's a tough question. How would you get at is the animal is the animal learned match to sample or has it learned two rules if red, peck red, if green, peck green? Any thoughts? This is not an easy question, by the way. Don't misunderstand me. I do know the answers. What if we change the stimuli to yellow and blue? If the animals learn match to sample, it shouldn't make a difference if it's yellow or blue. <coughs> if it's learned if green, pet green, if red, pet red, it's going to see yellow and blue and go, I don't know what to do. Then it'll be at 50%. If it's learned match to sample, it'll go, huh, yellow this time. Okay. Match to sample. Pigeons, as a rule, learn if red, pet red, if green, pet green. <coughs> I'm a pigeon. I'm stupid. I'm an inefficient loser animal. Jackdaws, different kind of bird, also the name of the ship in Assassin's Creed 4. It's a great game. Great game. Uh, actually, learn match the sample. Now, when you do give them yellow and blue, they, they, they drop a little bit, but they don't drop below chance. By the way, it doesn't matter how you solve it, both work. They both work, just that one's a little more efficient because you learn one rule. As far as the thinking ahead to the future, it's going to be green. I have to peck the green one, or it was green. I'll get to that in a second. That's a complicated thing to learn, to figure out. Right, so that's matching the sample, pretty typical animal memory technique. And in fact, versions of this are even used on people that have um, you know, uh, memory problems to see if, how long-lasting they are, things like that. Okay, here's another one. That's a, that's a very common one for birds, typically, that's also used with rats. Don't use colors with rats, because they don't see color. Okay. They can make you break this behavior color. You'll hear, if you listen to Spit and Twitches, which is the episode of John Crystal. Uh, I don't know if I bring this up, because I didn't want to embarrass John, but I'll do it now. Uh, when he was in second year, he got a summer insert, and he was doing this experiment. He was presenting it to our lab group, and we were all grad students. And, in that. He said, so I've got red lights and green lights, presenting them to these rats and um, different brightnesses. He goes, well, I don't know. I said, have they learned it? He said, so far they're doing okay. I said, well, then they're different brightnesses because rats don't see in color. He went, oh. <laughs> One day I'm going to get to introduce them at a big famous talk of some sort. I'm going to tell that story. 
because he's become exceedingly famous. When he left our lab, I think I told you guys this, I, we all wrote, wrote, put a card, gave him a card and wrote on it, we're glad you're leaving, you make us all look bad. We're all PhD students, he was like an undergrad. I've got two publications already. I'm going to hell. Um, he's actually the nicest guy in the world. The worst part, you want guys like that to be horrible, right? That are really good at things. But he's just nice as hell. He's a totally nice guy. Very annoying. You mean someone to justify your hate? No, no, we didn't really hate him. No, he can't hate John Crystal. He's a nice guy. I mean, that's why he can't hate him. No, because he's too nice. Like, he's, he's really a nice guy. And he's a super scientist. Here's a, something you might test some rats on, Radio Maze. First developed by Oldman Samuelson in 1976. This is so important an article that I can give you literally the whole citation from memory. I'm going to, I'm telling you I can. If you don't believe me, I will do it. And I'm saying, I've cited it, everybody's cited this so many times. Okay? So the idea of this task is that you've got these ARs are radiating out of the central platform, and it's got food in the ends, and the animal's task is to empty the arms. Now, the interesting thing is here, how would you do it? How would I do it? I would start at one and just go clockwise or counterclockwise. It's not what rats do. Rats do it in a bed. They do sampling without replacement. Random sampling without replacement. So they go down arms that they haven't been down, but they do it in a haphazard, unpredictable way. <laughs> But they're very good at it. You, you train rats. All you have to do, to, by the way, to get them to do this is you let them walk around the maze and you put food at the end of the arms. And they learn there's food in here. And then the next day, within five times, they can only do this once a day, again, because there's enough food at the end of each arm that they're full at the end of it. They're not going to work. By like five days in, six days in, so that's five or six trials, they're, they're at seven of their first eight choices are correct. If you were doing it all over the place, I don't think you could do that. Of course, again, you would, or, or I, I think, would just use a clockwise or counterclockwise strategy. There's no spatial identifiers. Oh, uh, it depends on how you do it. The way you would to make this easiest for a rat, uh, do it in a room like this where there's all kinds of different, there's lights a bit different here, there's stuff on the walls. Like there's, so a lot of times what you do is in a room in a lab, you would hang up posters, things like that, just to make it a little easier. Like we always thought it made it easier. Uh, we do know, in fact, that they do pay attention to the configuration of spatial cues around the arms. They are, they are, but if you put, like, say, different shapes at the end of each arm, they don't pay attention to the shapes. They pay attention to the where the shape is in relation to other shapes. So it's 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 a it's a spatial map they have. It's not individual tags. It's very cool. Good, good point. Now they can make they can make two kinds of errors: working memory errors and reference memory errors. So let's say you bait four arms. The animal's task, of course, is to go down the four arms where there's food and not go down the four arms where there's no food because it's a waste of time. Yeah? So the reference memory part is know which arms are baited. And you would have the same four baited all the time. And the working memory part is where have I been? Or you know what? It might be where should I go next? Dude, it's going to be prospective. It could be retrospective. So that you can look for working and reference memory errors. Once you've trained the animals up, again, let's say you uh, hippocampally lesion them, 
they, they go down the right arms. They just keep making, repeating them. They can't remember where they've been, but they know which ones are supposed to go down. They make working memory errors, not reference memory errors. Reference, working memory is, is almost, is, is hippocampal immediate. This has been used a lot of other species other than rats. In fact, uh, name one and then go look it up, and the answer is yes. It became very trendy in the late 70s, early 80s, still to, the, to this day, it's still used quite a bit. It's a really nice task. It works really well with rats, because rats live in the wild. Not that lab rats have ever existed in the wild. Those little black and white rats you could buy at the pet store, that's the kind you use in these experiments. They, they don't, wouldn't last all the while. They'd be eaten. They'd be eaten. They're too friendly. They're too friendly. But rats in the wild live in a central hub, and then they, they forage out in tongues. So that's what this is like, right? So they're good at this. They're going to be good at this because this is like where they've evolved to live. That said, other animals are really good at this task, too. It's a nice one. I've seen radial arm mazes for, for, for fish. Of course, it's full of water. Fish don't behave very well in this. When you take them out of water, just put them on a maze. It's stupid fish. <laughs> what a loser. He flops around like an idiot. Now he's dead. Oh, well. This must be so hard, it killed him. Fish must not be very smart. Yeah, exactly. It's not matching the task to the animal. Using the watch, though. <laughs> if you're really kind of mean. You know. Now, if it's a fish you eat, it's not so bad, I guess. But I mean, torturing something before you eat, it's weird. Unless, unless it's veal, then it's completely acceptable. Um, so the veal, you're already going down one way of being horrible. No, it feels awesome. Um, no, I'm saying, it, it, you might as if you're already killing a baby, you might as well go all the way and start talking. No. Stuff tastes better when it's treated well. Yeah? Can you go over the hippocampus Sure. So the, mem ref the working memory part of this is, don't go down arms I've been down in this trial. Okay. Right? The reference memory part is arms 1, 3, 6, and 8 are baited. Okay. So let's say the animal goes 1, 3, Six, one. If it goes back to one, that's a working memory error. It's already been down one on this trial. A reference memory error would be going down arm two, which is a bait. Okay? But if we lesion hippocampus, they'll go one, three, six, six, one, three, three, eight, eight, six, one, one, three, and those keep going too. Whereas rats that don't have a hippocampal lesion will actually stop once they've done all four. And they, like, they, once they've got four pieces of food, they'll sit there in the middle. They'll just kind of stare at you. <laughs> kind of look at you like, I'm done. There's four things on the maze. I wasn't born yesterday. I was born 26 days ago. I'm an adult rat. <laughs> I know where I'm going. There's no more food on this maze. And you learn very quickly. Well, the first time you run one of these experiments, you learn that the rats actually count. <laughs> it's like they know they've had their four pieces of food. That's also working. Okay. Make sense? Yeah. Good. <laughs> now, food in this case is information. I know it's, we don't think of it as, re as, now is it reinforcing to go down the arm? I don't know, probably. But we can also view food as information here. Now, what, what the hell is that supposed to mean? 
Well, what if we took the food and changed it from being down, what did I say, one, three, six, and eight? Let's pretend that's what I said. One, three, six, and eight. So instead, we're going to put it, they trained and they get very good at that. Five days later, they know they go down arms, one, three, six, and eight, and they're done. So now we're going to put it down arms two, four, five, and seven. Swap it out. Animal goes down arm one, nothing. Animal goes down arm three, nothing. Goes down arm seven, wait a second, six, six and eight, right, right, four. Six, goes down arm eight, nothing. Animal goes down arm two, food, and then it finishes. Because you wait until it finishes all the food. Next day, guess what? It doesn't go back, back, back down arm one. It's like, oh, the rules have changed. But I know the way the rules have changed. There are two kinds of arms. There are baited arms, and there are unbaited arms. And the rules have changed. Today, yesterday I found out that the world, as I know it, <laughs> is upside down. So the rat gets in the upside down. Anyway, that Stranger Things was OK. It wasn't great. Uh, and it runs down. Now it starts going down what it used to be unbeated arms. The food was information, not really reinforcement. Because it's reinforcement, it's not going to go down those other arms. But they switch over right away. Cool, right? Rats aren't stupid. They don't run the civilization. They don't have a planet. They don't, you know, it's the, the, you know, they don't have all that great stuff that we have. They aren't wrecking everything like we are. There's no pro basketball among rats. Just throwing out other things humans do. They got a society, but it's pretty not very good. Like not compared to ours. They don't have phones. They're losers, but they're pretty smart. They aren't just automatons that are waiting reinforcement. Right? They've learned a representation of the world. Okay? Questions about that make sense, yeah? I think. Okay. Conditions for memory. So what conditions do we look at? What are important things to see if we have memory in it? Well, first thing we have to talk about how salient something is. So things like inner trial interval. So now on the eight-hour maze, we wouldn't really talk about inner trial interval. We could. You could make them run right again as soon as they're done. People have done that kind of work. Okay, well, maybe not motivated to get Yeah, but you make sure there's very small amounts of food at the end. Or you just do two beta arms. Okay. Then you get them to run again, right away. You take them off, you put it back on. They have trouble doing that. So the trial interval is very slow. There's a lot of interference. Just like it is with humans, if I teach you a list of words, yeah, and then after that, I teach you another list of words, and then I say, well, this word was on the first list or the second list. You're going to go, I don't know. Unless there's something really obvious, like the first set of words was in um, another language. Right? But if they're just regular old words, English words, you're going to mix them up. Same thing happens here. So it's not going to be so salient. Because not going to stand out. confusing there if it's two different languages that are not languages. It's going to be, well, it's not two, if it's two different languages and you speak both. That you speak neither. Oh, so that just be sounds? You still make those, those mistakes, yeah. You'll still, you'll still confuse the two. The neat thing is when there are two languages you speak equally well, and then you have words that sound alike, yet meaning completely different things. 
or Steldelike. There's some cool work there that uh, Sheila Kern did years ago. Um, using words like uh, the, word, the French word for monkey. What's the French word for monkey? Sage, yeah. And what is it when you burn yourself? Singe. So she did that kind of thing, and people got really, it, it, it only works in the implicit memory of Maxwell's marriage. Very cool. Really, Lorraine. Very cool. Very cool word. What happened to Sheila? Somebody went to graduate school. There was a trend among all of us in graduate school you have time for people to shave their heads, and she had a shaved head. She had a shaved head. The 80s, it was a style of time. So, the duration of a stimulus, the trial interval. So, with matching the sample, if, if you have two trials very close together, they start to interfere with each other. Right? The duration of the trial, how long the animal sees the sample and matching the sample. The longer, the better. Of course, right? Makes sense. Uh, how surprising something is. Again, this is all really, look at what memory is. It's just the. It's the persistence of learning. So what makes you learn well is what make, what's going to make you remember well. And in fact, where the difference, where learning ends and memory begins, is kind of like where perception, sensation ends and perception uh, begins or whatever. I don't know. It's kind of... A chunking is an important thing. So you, you know what chunking in um, human memory, right? The idea that we did well. If you does anybody actually remember phone numbers anymore, or do you just do what I do? And just I got a landline actually, and I can remember phone numbers a lot better now. Well, because you have to actually, yeah, you can't yeah. just talk but to before it before that point. No. Yeah, right. So, but you remember them? Da 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 da. Right? Four numbers. Yeah, yeah. The three, three numbers, numbers and four. Yeah. Mm, you can't do that anymore. Well, what's the other area code here though? Just seven oh five, right? Five, yeah. Three, three, four. Was three, four here? Is that a new one? No, like there's, there's a section of... Oh, no, I understand that, but it's 705, but almost everybody hears 705 stuff. Yeah. yeah. Unless yeah. you're not from town. Yeah, sure, sure. But if you have a new phone number here, you're still getting a 705 number. Yeah. yeah. Not enough people living here, not enough devices that you're using all the phone numbers. Yeah. So, when you remember a phone number, you remember one from the university is 949-2301, right? And you hear the cadence in my voice, right? There's three, then four. And you chunk that as two items. 949, 2301. I remember my phone number from when I was a kid in Toronto. In 1970, my phone number was 2235260. Call right now, I don't care. I don't care. Ask Dave Broadbeck's there, because he's not. So, And remember when you were a kid learning your phone? Did you learn your phone number when you were a kid? Did you ever do it? Yeah, when you were like six, right? Because your mom and dad said you got to learn your phone number. Because what if you die? <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully they didn't say that. Because if, if your answer should be then, well, I'd be dead. Who would I call? <laughs> it was an important skill at my house because we use it for the Wi-Fi password. Ah, you shouldn't announce that to people. But <laughs> no one knows where I live. Well. <laughs> Actually, I, I'm pretty sure I can find out where you live. But anyway, um, <laughs> but yeah, so what, you, you know what? You used to get all your phone numbers. We actually do. Heck. You want his, everybody want his Wi-Fi key at home? Um, so <laughs> the important thing is when you learn it, you learn it as a kid. When you first learn your phone number, because <coughs> you, you're going to school, and your mom and dad said, here's your phone number in case you have to call home if something happens, right? It was a thing you learned. Even though they also had to fill out a form, you had your phone number on it. Every year, 
One day you will all be parents, and you will, most of you, and you will have to fill out the same information form every year for the same school, and it's all the same information. You know, oh, hip number. Oh, I think it's the same. Anyway, sorry, it bugs me a little. <laughs> but I remember learning it. My phone number is 2235260. You remember seven items, and then you eventually learn that phone numbers are 34. Right? Elena, how are we in Germany? How are phone numbers? Like, how many, how do they, do they work like, because like our phone number here, for example, at the university is this, right? We have right? differences between like cell phone numbers and your house phone really? number. Yeah. So cell phones what? Is it, yeah, cell phones are like uh, four digits. Four digits? It's like that, yeah, that's, a lot of people have the same, like the 705. Okay. Would be like the four digits. Yes. And then we have three. Yeah. And then again, also four. Okay, and now what is it for like uh, your, say your university back home, or your home, like um, your actual landline? You have for, depends where you live, you have also like a okay. code, right. and then normally five digits. Right. They changed it. I think it was only three, two. Okay. Early on it was just one number. Yeah. Okay, so it varies over there. It must be harder to learn phone numbers in a place where it varies. I'm just guessing because there isn't a pattern that's always yeah. followed, right? Whereas here, it's three, three, four. I left out the three because everything here is 705. Because I know when I went, I don't know if you've had this when you've, since you've been here, has anybody actually if you got somebody's phone number? What? I can't Because learning a phone number in a place where they, it doesn't have the same pattern is weird. You can do it, but it's hard. I know when I went to the UK and someone said, just, not, just, just ring me. Because that's what they talk over there, they're very weird. And they said, my phone number is 01865. I said, okay, just a second. Nobody's phone number is that. You're making that part up. And it was like five and six. And I was like, well, you have to write this down. I'm sorry, I'm just a stupid Canadian. Can you write down your phone number so I can call you and then get it in the wrong side of your car? <laughs> Every time like, you come out of a pub, I'd be going to the other side. Are you going to drive? Oh, no, right. Funny, funny joke about the blind guy. No, I'm going to sit over here. You people have jerked wheels the wrong side of your cars. <laughs> Very strange. So this is hard to do. <laughs> yet you've got a new system. Right? How would you test that with rats? <laughs> you know what you do? How about having a 12-hour radio maze? Because why not? And you have four kinds of different reinforcement. Nothing. Food pellets, which are okay. Pieces of cheese, you're going to think, hey, rats, I've seen cartoons. <laughs> they love cheese. Not as much as they like chocolate chips, guys. It's even close. So three chocolate chip arms, three cheese arms, three pellet arms, or noise pellets. And I, noise is uh, spelled like this. It's a, it's a company. N-O-Y-E-S. So it's not noisy. It, it means it's the name of the company. They're 45 milligram food pellets. They aren't that good. <laughs> I try one. I'm not going to hurt you. Yeah, I'd rather have the chocolate. It's basically just grain. Yeah. Yeah, yeah basically. I think so. But it's, it's perfectly well-balanced food for them. Right? It's, it's good for them. Unlike the cheese and the chocolate, which probably isn't. You train them up. Chocolate arms, cheese arms, you mix it all over, and then one day you just switch it around. Kind of like the idea of food being information. 
and they switch over very quickly. That's the first piece of information that they've chunked. But the second thing is they go in order of preference. They go chocolate, cheese, noise pellets, nothing. And when you get to the nothing, I, I know who ran, the person who was running this experiment, Bill Roberts laughed. I remember watching his rats, and he had to wait for them to go down those final three arms. And the rat would literally sit there and look at the camera. <laughs> like it knew there was a camera on it, like, I'm not doing this. I've got all day. Don't you have to go to class? So, you can, so it's chunking. Pretty cool, right? Um, there's retroactive and proactive interference in, 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 in animal memory. Just, these are all things you see in human memory. Retroactive interference going back, proactive interference from one trial going ahead. So for example, if you're doing matching sample, if it's proactive interference, it's what happened two trials ago on trial N affects trial N plus one. So if, you're, if the last time the, 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 the sample was green and this time it's red, it may be the case that it picked green anyway because it, it's like, I'm confused. Was it red or was it green? Was it, oh, no, the green was two trials ago. That's proactive. Retroactive, if you ask the animal, which one can do, what was it two trials ago? And it gets confused. It was one trial ago. Exactly what happens with us. So we can see and talk about animals are special and different, each species is different than they are, but there are some very general rules we can, that, 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 that memory follows no matter what the species, right? The context is important as well. So if an animal learns something in one place, in one room, and you take it to another room, it may have trouble remembering what happened. So for example, you put a rat, and Bill Roberts, he's done this in his lab, Bill's done everything like this. You have a rat on a maze. It runs eight trial, or it runs eight armorial maze. It takes four choices, and then a cylinder comes down when it gets down to the middle, and it can't make any more choices. So it's got kind of a James Bond evil villain thing, if the rat is James Bond. And then the lights go out, and then you change the room. Oh, yeah, that's pretty easy to do. You just put a curtain around the thing, and it changes colors, and like that. You train it up, the, the, when, when you train it up, that sort of, that sort of interval there, nothing happens. So it goes, it's a, it's, it's a black curtain, it's a black curtain. Now, when you screw with it, <laughs> it's a black curtain, and then it's magically a white curtain. And that's like Penn and Teller for rats. <laughs> and sometimes, and this depends on, oh, there's all kinds of factors that happen here. Sometimes the rats will actually treat that like a brand new trial. In fact, typically that's what they'll do. It's like, oh, uh, okay, I'm not there anymore. Obviously that Star Trek transporter thing's real, because rats know lots about Star Trek. And, um, no, nothing? So, there's again. My marriage is protecting me. Um, so, the context that's in the, you can do this too with, with, with pigeons, with uh, sort of an occasion setting kind of idea. One that when the tone is on, it's delayed matching the sample. When the, there's no tone, it's delayed non-matching. They can learn those kind of things. Conditional kind of stuff. Very cool. 
Okay, we're interested in differences, really. I mean, I am, so therefore you are. Um, the pigeons uh, got, got a pretty good memory for individual slides. I talked about Juan Gilles' work earlier in the course about how six months later the rat, sorry, pigeon can remember what slides were S plus, which ones were S minus, and it was a pseudo category situation. So the pigeons were, uh, the slides were random, just randomly into categories. So pigeons are pretty impressive that way. Camel and Balda. Uh, have found really amazing long-term sort of memory in um, Corbett's, so in Clark's Not Crackers, Scrub Jays, things like that. They can remember, um, well, in the, in the field, a Clark's Not Cracker stores 40,000 seeds, sorry, 30,000 seeds in the fall, and recovers about 25,000 of them six months later <clears throat> in a 40-kilometer radius. You can't, like, literally, you couldn't do that. Now, could you write it down when you put them all? Yeah, sure. So there's things humans can do that a clerk's not correct. It can't do. It would take a while, but you could do it, right? And you could take a picture with your phone and GPS coordinates. Like, but yeah, but they didn't have to invent all that. Those nutcrackers can do that. Think about that, though. That's a So halfway of the Mackinac Bridge, draw a circle and hide 30,000 things. And then I'm going to say, OK, in March, find them. <laughs> There's no way you can do that. Wouldn't would it be easier for us to store them in one location and then protect it? But, so that's called larder hoarding, and this is scatter hoarding. Larder hoarding is great if you are near your larder. Scatter hoarding is, different, is, is, is better if you aren't an animal that stays in one place all the time. And most birds aren't. Most birds, the nest isn't really a home, it's a place to incubate your eggs, right? Yeah. So some, some, some birds are, are, are larder hoarders, some most birds that store food, though, are scatterers, including even shrikes and things like that that actually impale. Shrikes are horrifying. Yeah, they're, they are. They're actually just evil. They're like war criminals. Yeah. <laughs> they impale small rodents on spikes. That's how they store their food. Yep. Yeah. Do they follow the same pattern when they're dropping off? <coughs> no, that's an excellent question. It's literally an excellent question. People have looked at that. Do they care about, like, so the, is there like a, an effect of, of order of when they stored them? Yeah, right? like if their hippocampus is storing like spatial mm -hmm. cues. And that's what it is. It's probably storing uh, places in individual, individual places in three-dimensional space. But it's not, they don't do it, say, in reverse order or in the order they've stored them. They don't. No. So they do it by availability? Mm-hmm. Oh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's pretty cool, right? But... When you live in the, in the mountains of New Mexico and Arizona, that's where Clark's Nutcrackers live, and where it's there's, there's snow covered, mm -hmm. and you're going to start mating in March when there's still snow, you better be able to find food. Because right? once you've mated, you've got to hang around by the nest, so you need food every day. Clark's Nutcrackers are like chickens, they're bigger birds, they're about the size of a small pigeon. So they need food all the time. They, they are so specialized for storing food, they actually have a sublingual pouch, which is, well, let me just say it's not a sublingual, no, the tongue pouch. It's a pouch. And it'll, they can hold a couple hundred seeds in it. So they'll, they'll pick up all these seeds they find, and they'll, they go up and it's still. Blue jays are like that too, except more in their cheeks. Blue jays are also mean. <laughs> are there any animals that poach? Yeah, cash pilfering. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah, they do. Is it systematic? That's the question. 
there definitely is cash pilfering. It happens to squirrels, other birds, whatever. Yeah, it's more common mammals. But watching another animal store and then go, okay, so you put it there. He's, oh, he's over there, I can steal it. There's not a lot of evidence that that actually happens. Uh, I know people tried to look at this. Christine Hitchcock tried to look at cash pilfering. And right now, in Dave Sherry's lab, Jeff Martin's looking at that for his PhD. Uh, I'm not, I don't know, I can find out for you if you're interested. I don't know where, how far along Jeff is in that project, but it's pretty cool. Is he here? Like, no, it's a, well, it's in London. London. Yeah, not here. Oh, yeah, here you guys here in have, Ontario. You guys don't have grass. No. Right. Not yet. Fears. It will be too late for you. Yeah. Why would you want to study this? Again? Weird. So most people think, that's what I'm saying. It's actually cool as hell, but not yet. Probably biology will hit it first, and then what? So is cash pilfering based on like the animal that's pilfering like they're memorizing where it's stored? That's just, the idea. Is it, is, is it just like, or is it just seeing that and just... Yeah, well, this is the question. If So if you get a, a chickadee to watch another chickadee store food, does it remember where... Does Keegan the chickadee watch Dave the chickadee store food and go, well, Dave stores things, that, store that one and I'm going to steal it. Well, you'd think that because they didn't store it, they wouldn't memorize it as well. Right? Well, this is, maybe. Sensitive. That's an interesting point. It's possible. Or maybe if they're very good at it, uh, but of course that takes a lot of effort. So you have to be that you can't be storing while the other guys while you're watching because then you can't do either as well. I can't remember where I put my seeds as well as if only I'm paying attention to that. So if you're doing anything half measure, and animals don't tend to do things like that. Like they don't tend to forage and uh, defend territory at the same time because then you're doing both of them poorly and then you end up dying. <laughs> like it, that's it's always life or death. And nature's really horrible. Um, but. So it may be the case that if you're going to make that decision to be a cash pilferer, you better, better be very good at it. You teach these pilfer? Or, yeah, oh. they do, but do they learn? Is it opportunistic or not is the question. Mm -hmm. Yes, go ahead. So would, um, say, snakes attacking uh, a nest for eggs count as cash pilfering? Yeah, that's only a cash, right? Because the, 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 the bird hasn't put those eggs there as stored food, knowing that... There are eggs there is a different story. Yeah, yeah. That's probably just a matter of semantics. Yeah, yeah cash pilfering is great stuff. If anybody's interested in it, I can put you in touch with Jeff Martin. He can tell you he's a very good guy. How about a baseball player too? He went he went to like Nebraska or some or something on a baseball scholarship. And then he's doing graduate school in Canada because he's Canadian. I also love Canadian varsity sports because like he's a PhD student in a place where Western's baseball team. Canadian varsity sports are great. Oh, you also are doing research on birds and are starting first baseman. Um, Anders Broden, uh, who is probably, he's done more of this sort of long-term cash recovery stuff. He's done does stuff with the uh, Siberian titmouse and the willow tit, which live in Russia. Uh, he's talking, like, he thinks... He says he has evidence of nine months a year of cash recovery. Good. Yeah, it's pretty impressive, right? I had dinner with him last year at you know, this conference where I got this t-shirt. And uh, 
made a lot of jokes about Norwegians because he's Swedish. That's all I remember. <laughs> okay, we've been drinking, okay? Um, are species, are differences specific or are they general? So I guess the question I'm asking here is, well, I know the question because I wrote the slide, is, is this animal smarter than this animal? Just generally smarter. Or is it in this very specific domain? Right? So like, for example, and I'll just pick two people. And let's pretend, and I don't know if this is true, but let's pretend that, well, one of the people's going to be me, and I'm going to look, I'm going to come like, like a dumb guy. Let's do it that way. So let's say that I get C's in everything. All right, oh, sorry, I get C in this class, which would be weird because I'm teaching it. And he can get to that. We can say King is better than David in this class. We can say that, no problem. But can you say he's smarter than him? Well, we don't know. What would we have to do? We'd have to say, how do what I do in English? Never took English? What am I going to do in English? <laughs> um, we'll look at how we did math. Now, look, if he gets A's in everything, I get C's in everything, he's smarter than him. Right? But what if it's just something that he's, it's very special, like, just better at this than I am because he's interested in it and just better at it. So we would predict if an animal is both smarter than one species, smarter than another, we'd always get the same ordering in a task. If it's specific to a certain kind of problem, which is what the sort of synthetic or, uh, or ecological approach would say, we would predict that it would only be under certain circumstances. So this is, I haven't, I'm not telling you what the tasks are here, but these are different food stores on different kinds of tasks. So this is a Clark's Nutcracker, the Pinion J, P-I-N-O-N, but the end's got one of those little things over it, like Senor, I don't know what that's called. Uh, it's a tilde. It's like a tilde, yeah, okay. Mexican J, and Scrub J. Now, first of all, this is how much they depend on food store, on stored food. Hippocampal volume. First, second, second, third. Ooh, <coughs> Cash recovery. It ranks up. Uh, Mexican Jays. Mexican Jays haven't been compared to these other species in cash recovery, so we can the same kind of experiment, so we can't rank them. A&M radio maze. Okay, again, a spatial task. It ranks properly. Spatial delayed matching the sample, or delayed non-matching the sample. First, and then these ones are second. Uh, these ones are, Clark's Nutcrackers are ridiculously good at that. Color delayed non-matching the sample. Yeah, there's just no relationship whatsoever. This is exactly what we would predict if this spatial ability among Clark's Nutcrackers versus Hindi Jays, Mexican Jays, and Scrub Jays was based on their cash recovery. Or, sorry, based on their food storing and their reliance on stored food. Make sense? So this is the, no, they're, they're not just smarter than these ones. It's just that under these tasks that have to do with food storing, they're better. They, they, they go up, they, they proceed in that order. Okay? Questions about that? Most of those data are Balda and Camel, Deb Olson, Steve Vanderwall. If you're interested, I can dig up the individual articles I pulled this from. Was the color group just like a control, or is it because 
two of those or more of those birds look at colored seeds? Uh, no, you can. It, it's it's basically just something they shouldn't be. There shouldn't be a difference okay. in there, is it? Yeah, that's a good question. So, yeah, we'll do this slide last because this is really complicated. We'll end with this. Okay, is it prospective or retrospective in current? Herb Whiteblatt's PhD thesis, which I had so much trouble understanding when I first read the paper based on this. But it's neat. It's symbolic magic, okay? And this isn't mean pigeons. If you have a red sample, you're supposed to peck a horizontal line. That's the right answer. Okay? I know this is weird. If you have an orange sample, you peck a vertical line. That's the correct answer. And a blue sample is an almost vertical line, so instead of being vertical, instead of being vertical, it's almost vertical. It's like 10 degrees. Now, here's the thing. If they make mistakes when the choices are one and two, so they get a red sample, but then they get a difference between a horizontal and vertical line. So you get a red sample, and a horizontal, or a vertical line. If they make mistakes there, that means it's, re it's retrospective. Because red and orange are similar. Do you see that? Because horizontal and vertical are no, the lines can't be any more different than horizontal and vertical. Yeah? So that should be easy if they're encoding prospectively. If they're saying that it's got to be red, uh, horizontal or vertical, that's, that's, you can't make that. How can you make that mistake? How can you confuse them? But confusing red and orange is easy. So if they make mistakes there, they must be encoding retrospectively. Does everybody see that? Because it's not an easy thing to get. I, I understand that. On the other hand, if they make mistakes when the choices are two and three, so you get an orange sample and then a vertical and almost vertical line. If they make mistakes there, it's because they're coding prospectively. Because vertical and almost vertical are very similar. Orange and blue are really different. Orange and blue are very different. Okay. It's a complicated experiment, but it's exceedingly clever. Well, what do they do? I guess you probably want to know. Um, when the inner trial interval is short, or sorry, the retention interval is short, they encode retrospectively. What the longer it gets, depending on the bird, they switch over to prospective encoding. So when it's like a second or less, they do retrospective. When it switches over to being longer than a second, like this varies a little bit individual to individual, they switch over to prospective encoding. So it goes from what was I supposed to do to what should I do. That's exceedingly clever, isn't it? If you don't think it's clever, you don't clever me, so I wouldn't worry about it. Yeah, certain models. Yeah. Uh, my name's Todd, I work downstairs in the e-learning center. I yes. see something on the schedule that there's supposed to be a Google Meet. I'm sure there is, in 10 minutes, I bet, right? Are you just finishing your I'm finishing my okay. okay, I'll wait outside. Good.
maybe I'll go a little longer just for the hell of it. Okay, so any questions about that? Because it is a very complicated experiment. And we'll continue talking about this in the future. Uh, but we'll, so we'll wrap this stuff up. I've got like three slides to go. And then uh, we, have, we have a couple of talks next time on those two papers by John Crystal. Take a look at them, please, uh, because um, it, it makes everybody's life easier if they've all read this stuff. Thanks, guys. listening to the lecture um all of the audio is available of course on itunes or whatever podcatcher you're using just search for da uh, dr dave broadbeck's uh, psychology lectures in algoma university which is the most ungainly title ever uh these are released under a sh uh, uh, creative commons copyright share like 3.0 canada uh you can't use these for commercial purposes um you feel free to share them uh and feel free to mash them up any way you want but if you do that that means i get to do the same thing with your stuff Sort of like the GNU license. Um, I hope you 
learned something. But if you didn't, I, unless you're one of my students, I really don't care. Um, the music, by the way, for each uh, song, for each uh, uh, episode, <laughs> lecture, uh, is uh, available. They're all podcast, uh, like Podsafe Music. So if you want to uh, find out about the bands, there's links on my website at people.aoc.ca slash broadback. Uh, if those links don't work, just contact me and I'll find uh, I'll find out. Um, often I put links uh, actually in the uh, if you want to call them show notes or blog posts. So uh, you know, buy these people's music. They're they're making the stuff available out there. Uh, thanks everybody. We'll see you next time.